most of you are familiar with the fact that Jesus had 12 disciples. But what we don't think about very often is that he wasn't the first person to have disciples, nor was he the last. If you go way back in history to the Greek philosophers, they had disciples. Socrates' disciple was Plato, who I'm sure you've heard of, even if you've never read. And Plato's disciple was uh, Aristotle. Great scientists in history have had disciples, like Galileo and Einstein. Activists have had disciples, people like Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa. Today, if you talk to men 18 to say 35, a lot of them will be disciples of these guys, Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or other people in the manosphere. Now, if you talk to the older crowd, they are disciples of people like uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman or Dr. Peter Atiyah. Now, the disciples of these two, they identify themselves really easily because they're always interested in telling you how much REM sleep they got last night. And uh, most of us don't care. Yeah, uh, Dave Ramsey has disciples. These are people who cut up their credit cards and scream, I'm debt free. You walk into some homes and you immediately can identify them as disciples of Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? I mean, it has all the feels of them. Or the, if you go back into the 70s, the Grateful Dead was a band that had disciples. They, they named themselves the Deadheads, and the most committed just traveled from concert to concert. Today, Taylor Swift has disciples. They also have a name, right? Uh, the Swifties, they transcend generation, but the only thing I know the Swifties have in common is that they exchange bracelets and all root for the Chiefs. So it's a good world we live in. Uh, in the Jewish world, the rabbis were the ones who had disciples. Yeah, the young boys would go to Hebrew school, learn their uh, Bible, and then they, the best of the best kind of got to go to the next level of school, and the best of the best of that group got to actually follow a rabbi. And they, the Jewish sources said that, that these followers, these disciples, were so close, spent so much time, a personal time with a rabbi, that they had the rabbi's dust on them. They, they lived in the dust of their rabbi. So when Jesus comes along and he starts calling disciples, it's really normal. That's what rabbis do. Nobody still was surprised. But Jesus is still calling people to be his disciples today, to be so close to him, to spend so much time with him that, that we actually have his dust, his life on us. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we spend time with him, that we become like him. And that we live like him. We do the things that Jesus did. So thinking about what it means for us to be disciples, we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verse 1, and the calling of the very first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, now this is just the, another name for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So Jesus has been teaching and healing in this general location, and he's kind of getting a reputation. So he's out walking next to this lake, and there's a bunch of people that start following him, and they want him to teach, so, so he does, and more people come, and everybody's kind of pressing up against him. And, and, and what I want you to see, though, is that when Jesus goes to call his first disciples, he doesn't go to the synagogue, because he's not looking for the most religious people. He doesn't go to the kind of the government buildings because he's not looking for the people with political power. When Jesus calls his first disciples, he doesn't go to the best schools because he's not looking for the best students. 
No, when Jesus calls his first disciples, it turns out that they're fishermen. He's calling ordinary people with very ordinary lives. There's this misconception that, that somehow more education is damaging or harmful to your faith. So there's a story that goes out that, that, that you know, let's say you have a couple of high school students who grew up in church, Johnny and Susie, and, and, and they were all committed to church stuff. Then they went to college, and they got all that education, and, and that led them away from Jesus. So now they're no longer uh, churchgoers. They're no longer identified as Christians. It's that evil education that did them in. Here's the problem with that. It's, it's well known. It's a common story. It's also really wrong. It's a myth. All the best data shows that the Christians who are leaving church uh, the fastest are people with less education and correspondingly then with less income. It turns out that, that going to college and getting education is not at all bad for your faith. But I think that Jesus looks down on the situation and he is disappointed that so many people who lack education and lack opportunity and lack financial resources are finding themselves on the outside of churches, walking away from churches. I think that breaks Jesus' heart. Because while Jesus has a heart for everyone, the Bible is really clear that he especially loves those. He has a special place in his heart for those that the world overlooks those that don't seem important in the world's eyes. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, could say about Christians in the first century, he could say this about them. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that everybody would know that what happened was from God. But when, when Jesus goes out to start calling his first disciples, he, he doesn't expect them to come to him. He goes out to where they are. He lives life on their turf. Luke 5, verse 2. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. The, the fishermen, they would work all night, and, and then they would uh, finish that shift, that night shift. They'd take their nets and clean them and then go home, grab some food, sleep, see their family before they had to start it all over again the next day. Verse 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So it's kind of weird because it looks like Jesus doesn't really ask for permission here, right? I mean, he just gets in Simon Peter's boat and he's just like, hey, take me out there. I'm, I'm going to teach the people. And you kind of see from Jesus' perspective what he's doing. He's kind of creating this floating pulpit, right? By being out in the water in this boat, he escapes the pressing of the crowd on him. And because water carries sound so well, he's able to talk to the, to the large crowd, but when you read the story, it comes off as if Jesus is being a little rude, a little demanding and presuming upon Simon Peter. But, but here's what you have to remember, is that right before this story happened, uh, Jesus had healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And in, in every culture, there's a sense of, you do something nice for me, I need to do something nice for you. But that's especially true in Middle Eastern culture. That if you do something good for me, then I'm expected, even obligated, to return that favor. 
So you kind of get the impression as you read this story that, that Peter just wants to clean the nets, put the equipment away, and go home and, and see his family, but he can't refuse Jesus' request. But what I want us to see this morning is that being a disciple of Jesus does not mean leaving your profession. And the reason I think some of us need to hear that is because some of us grew up in churches where if you were really serious about the faith, like you were really committed to Jesus, then you might be a missionary or a, or a, or a pastor. They were on the varsity, and everybody else was, was kind of on the JV, right? They didn't love Jesus enough to leave profession behind and, and just go serve him fully. Well, we always need good missionaries and, and, and pastors. That's great. But that's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, because it turns out that Jesus doesn't want you to leave your profession. He wants you to serve him in your profession. Jesus starts Simon's whole discipleship process by calling him to do his profession in service of Jesus. A large lake like the Sea of Galilee, you ever take like a boat and put it out there? It kind of drifts everywhere. And so what Jesus wanted to do was to speak to the crowd, so he's asking Simon to put out in the water and then to keep the boat still in this large lake with the waves going and everything. That takes a lot of skill, a lot of practice, but that's what Simon did. That was his job. He was a fisherman. He could, he could do that. But what I think you and I need to see is that whatever we do during our day, we need to do that for Jesus. Like, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're a teacher, or you're a doctor, or you're a janitor, or you're a carpenter, or you're a banker, whatever it is, we, we need to do those things in service of Christ as his disciple. See, I, I think there's this idea that I need to leave my job. Like, maybe if I grow my faith, I could go work for a nonprofit who does lots of good things in the community. Or I can't wait until I retire because when I have enough money to retire, then I can focus more on serving Jesus. Then I can do something that's really more valuable. Then I can really make a difference. But Jesus doesn't say that serving him requires you to spend less time in your profession. What it means is serving him in your profession. Simon, he was a fisherman. More than a philosopher or like a, a theologian or a media executive with a big platform. No. Not only was he an ordinary guy with an ordinary life, but he had an ordinary job. If you've ever thought you're ordinary, if you ever thought, well, gosh, there's nothing special about me, then, then I think what you should hear is, is Jesus saying, hey, come, follow me. I call people like you all the time. I do extraordinary things in your life. The first step of, of that is bringing that ordinariness all to me because I can use you. So the, 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 the question then is if you're a mechanic, how do, you, how do you be a mechanic for Jesus? If you're in sales, how do you do that for Jesus? Whatever you do, how do you do it for Jesus? That's what Paul says in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, Whatever you do with your life, whatever you, your hobbies are, whatever you, however you make money, whatever your profession, whatever your career, whatever your education, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 23 years ago, in the summer of 2000, uh, the crossing began. And when we first met, there were no people. So we got a room on campus, and we thought, well, this will be big enough for a while. And, and it was for a couple of months, but it was, the room wasn't very good. There was no place for kids or anything like that, and parking was hard. And then people started coming, like 
you know, like, well, we can't stay here. This isn't big enough. What are we going to do next? And so we were looking around town trying to figure out where we could meet. And churches, it's weird because you don't have any money, so it's got to be cheap. And you need like a big room like this where you can do music in and stuff. And, and, and you need stuff for kids and parking. So it's kind of hard. Like, where are we going to find the right place that our church can meet. And it was kind of like, I don't know. There's this place over at Rockbridge High School, though, the Performing Arts Center there. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a great room. And, and we thought that'd be perfect. But every time we tried to reach out with an email or trying to ask somebody we know, the answer was always like, no, 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 no. There's no way we're gonna let you meet there. And I totally get why, because we were just gonna make somebody's life harder. Like the teacher who oversaw that whole thing, we were gonna make her life harder, and it it was gonna be no benefit to her. So if I was her, I wouldn't want us to meet there either. But we were kind of desperate, so we were just like, well, I don't know, just pray. And right when we were about to give up on that option, it turns out that the principal of Rockbridge High School had been coming to the crossing when we met on campus. He was one of the first people to come, and so he was like, well, look, this teacher, that's her area. She gets to make the decision, but I know her pretty well. We work together. I could probably set up a lunch for you. 23 years later, I could take you to the exact table at Ruby Tuesdays. We sat and met that one for lunch. 23 years ago, I could go back, and I could tell you a lot about that lunch because I was blown away. At the end of it, she's like, okay, you can use it, and we're like, Wow to see God work in somebody's life, to see God open a door, to see God uh, change somebody's mind when they had no, nothing to gain from it. It just showed us that God is in this thing. But here, here's what I want you to get, is that 23 years later, there's a lot of ways to tell this church's story. And maybe you go, oh, the pastors did this, or the staff did that. Here's the person I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for a high school principal who was willing to do their job with excellence and then use that credibility to set up a lunch. And I'm really glad he didn't feel like he had to leave his profession so he could do something more valuable to serve Jesus. Let's go back to Luke chapter five, verse four. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So when Jesus is done teaching, you expect him to get off the boat. Thanks, Peter. You know, I'm going to go on with my day. But that's not what happens. Instead, the, the, the carpenter, Jesus the carpenter, instructs the professional fishermen how, when, where to catch fish. Now, I, I just want you to imagine what it feels like to, to have somebody who's never done your job tell you how to do it. Like maybe you're a parent and somebody who's never had kids is telling you how to parent your kid, right? And you're like, uh, who are you again? Or, or maybe you're a teacher and, and, and there's somebody who's never had an education degree and never taught a day in the classroom, but they're telling you how to teach your class. How do you respond to things like that? My guess is you responded a lot like Peter did in verse five. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Uh, to anybody that knows anything about fishing, Jesus' suggestion was ridiculous, especially if you know about fishing in the Sea of Galilee because the nets they were using were designed for shallow water. They weren't designed for the deep water. And, and everybody on that f- lake knew that the fish fed at night. That's why the fishermen worked nights. So here's Simon Peter and his coworkers. And, and they're exhausted because they worked all night. And they're disappointed because they caught nothing. So now they can't feed their family that day, right? There's no fish to sell to, to, 
to pay the bills, and now they finally got the nets clean so they can go home, and, and here's a guy, Jesus, a carpenter, a guy who's never fished a day in his life, telling them to go let down their clean nets in the deep water during the middle of the day. It's ridiculous. Verse five, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Here's what Peter's saying. Your suggestion, Jesus, your idea, your, your word here to me makes no sense. But because you say so, Jesus, what you're telling me to do goes against my experience. It's not the way I would do it. But because you say so, I'll do it. See, what we're seeing right here is something you and I need to learn. We need to learn to submit to God's word. To put God's word in authority over how we feel. To put God's word in authority over our experience. To put God's word over our sense of what we would do. See, what Peter is doing is he's submitting to Jesus' word here, and it's what we have to do. We have to say, Jesus, because you say so, even though this doesn't make sense, Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it, even though it's not my preference, even though it goes against my desires. Because that's what disciples do. Disciples defer to God's word. Disciples submit to God's word. And what we see in the Bible is that there are all kinds of stories like this where God says something, but it doesn't seem right to the person. I mean, think about Eve back in the garden. God said very clearly, God's word was, do not eat from the fruit of that tree. And yet, here comes another word of the serpent and challenges God. Genesis chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was very good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband, Adam, and he ate it. What did Eve do? She put her experience, she said, she said, I know you said this, God, but this is the way it looks to me. I know you said this, but this looks like it's got promise here, like there's hope here, like this will be really tasty, it'll make my life happier, like it'll, it'll be better for me. I know you said that, but... And the whole world goes into the chaos of sin. What about uh, Noah? Think about Noah. Noah was told by God, here's God's word to Noah, build this ark because the rains of judgment are coming. And Noah has to decide, what am I gonna do? So he starts building this ark and it takes a long time and it's this huge thing and it's a lot of effort and his family's helping him and everybody's walking by and going, well, that's stupid. What are you doing, Noah? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, Noah. What, who, you believe what? And Noah had to say, no matter what the people around me say, because God says so, I'm going to obey God. Or think about Mary. Here Mary is told that by an angel that she will conceive of the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to her? No, it doesn't make sense. She's never been with a man. Of course this can't possibly be happening. But what does Mary say? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What she said is the same thing Peter said. It's the same thing Noah said. Because you say so, 
Because you say so, I will obey you even when it's confusing. Because you say so, I will obey you when things don't make sense. Because you say so, I will obey you when everything inside of me wants to do something different. When friends and culture are telling me that I'm ridiculous, I will obey you. Because you say so, I will obey you with my money. And because you say so, I will obey you with my time and my, and my thoughts and my, and my body and my sexuality and my speech. I will obey you with everything, not because because it makes sense to me or seems right or feels good, but because I am a disciple of Jesus and I obey him and his word has more authority in my life. So I will obey you with everything that I have because you say so. Is there a part of your life that you need to submit to God? Like you know what God's word is, but now you need to surrender and submit to God's word in your life. You don't wanna do it. You don't feel like it's right to do it. But who's got the authority? Your sense of intuition or God? Who's, who, who gets to make the call in your life? God and his word or you and what you wanna do? Huh, that's a tough decision. Right, let's go to the next verse. Luke 5, 6 and 7. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So because Jesus said so, they let down clean nets in the deep water during the day, the most foolish thing they could possibly do. Didn't make any sense to them, but as soon as they do it, fish start jumping in the nets. I mean, all of a sudden they had gone all night and they hadn't caught any fish, but now they do what Jesus said and the fish are piling in, their nets are breaking. They're trying to haul them up on the boat. The boat's breaking. They're signaling the other boat, hey, come over here. And their nets and their boat are breaking. They got so many fish. So, so what do you think? Peter's reaction is to all this. I, I mean, here he's gone all night and not caught anything. He's broke. He can't, he can't afford to pay his workers for the day. And now he's got fish jumping in. You think he was pumped? I bet he was pumped. But we don't have to wonder what Peter's reaction is because we have a live look at Peter that day. <laughs> he was pretty excited because now he can pay the bills, right? He was pretty happy. Now, if you'd have been Peter and this happened to you, what would you have done? You know what I would have done? I would have said, Jesus, can we go in business together? Because I, I need fish. I'm a fisherman. You can just make fish jump in my boat. We're going to have a great life together. Is that what Peter did? Well, let's check. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Well, that's not what I expected. Why, why did Peter react that way? Why was that his response? Because I think for the very first time, Peter saw through the miracle and saw God behind the miracle. For the very first time, he saw Jesus and all his holiness and all his beauty and all his majesty and all his power and all his glory and all his love and mercy. And he, he, he just was overwhelmed because the more he saw of Jesus' holiness, the more he saw his own corrupt heart. So instead of high-fiving Jesus, instead of hugging Jesus, he falls down on his knees before Jesus. He falls down on his knees. We say, I want to be near God. Do you? We say, when I want to be near God, we think, oh, you know, that's like rainbows and pastel colors. Well, let's just be near God. But in the Bible, when you see people get near God, that's not how it goes down. 
Isaiah the prophet walked into the temple and saw God high and holy, exalted. And the angel is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, here's his response to that. Woe to me, I cried, I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty, he'd seen God in his glory in his life. I'm undone. My life falls apart because I know my own sin. How about Job 42, uh, uh, verses five and six. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I, I see you in your glory in, in the same response that Peter had, who falls down his knees, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The same response that I, Isaiah has, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. So Job has, I repent in dust and ashes. Let me, let me show you a diagram of the Christian life um, or one way to think about this part of the Christian life. And I, I want to try to make sense out of our experience. So, so as time goes on, this person becomes a Christian. And as they are a Christian for longer and longer, they have this growing awareness of God's holiness of his beauty, of his power, of his majesty, of his glory, of his love, his mercy. They just, they just get more and more of that the longer they're a Christian. But at the same time, just like Peter, just like Job, just like Isaiah, they see more and more of your own sinfulness, don't you? Like you start seeing, well, my sin isn't just my actions, but it's my words, not just my words, but it's my motives, not just my motives, it's my thoughts. And, and you get more bothered by your sin. And so you have this thing where God's holiness is becoming greater and your sinfulness is becoming greater, at least in your own experience, in your own mind, in your own heart. And so what it calls you to do is depend more and more on the grace that God shows you in the cross. But this explains why you can start seeing your sin more and more and go, gosh, I, I thought I was growing in my faith, but I don't know. I see myself as a desperate sinner and yet at the same time have more peace of where you are with God, because you know that God's cross is sufficient to pay for your sin. Let's go back to the story, Luke 5, verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, when they left everything and followed Jesus, it doesn't mean they never fished again. No, we see them in the, in the Gospels fishing again. They are, they are normal people with normal jobs and normal families' lives, right? When it says they left their nets and followed him, what it means is that the nets, the fishing, the job, the education, the, uh, it wasn't number one anymore. They, they left those and followed him. They put Jesus first, and everything else was behind Jesus. See, Jesus was ultimate. That's what it means to leave your nets, to make Jesus ultimate in your life. And Jesus is calling you, calling you today to be his disciples, to follow him so closely, to live with him so personally that his dust gets on you. See, disciples, well, what do we learn? Well, they submit to God's word. They say, because you say so, God, I will obey you in every area of my life. Disciples, they depend on God's grace. They see God's holiness and they see their sinfulness, but they know the grace of the cross of Christ and they rely on that. That's their only hope. And disciples, they surrender to Jesus. They leave their nets, they leave everything, and they put him first and everything else second. Who are you gonna be a disciple of? What are you out there in the world searching for? What is it that you think will make you happy? The praise of people? Doesn't that end up being pretty empty in your life? Like you think you want it, but it's empty. Or, or the treasures that this world has to offer? 
But don't you know, don't you know from your own experience that every time you get those, they just kind of fade. They never are enough for you. Because the only thing that will satisfy you, the only thing that is enough for you, isn't a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus. Jesus. There's nothing better than him. There's nothing that will satisfy you like Jesus. Amen.